So today, uh, we are in the fourth sermon on the ancient future practices of the church series. And, uh, you know, what we've been doing is we've been going to this first verse that was ever spoken about the New Testament expression of the church. And we've been looking back at this as the blueprint and the design for the church. And we've been asking ourselves the question, how are we doing? Are we matching up? Like, I mean, this is, this is the design for the church, the original design. This is how he created the church. And so here we are years later and we look back at our origin and how far have we strayed from the path. And we want to make sure that we're as tightly tied to our origin as possible and to the design as possible. And so that's what we've been doing. And what we did was we took Acts 2.42 and we've broken it down and we've taken the main words of that verse and have tried to help, uh, help us understand those words. So the verse was, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And first, first week, remember we looked at that word devoted? What does it mean to be devoted to something? And we said this is way different than just having interest in something or having a desire for something or being disciplined about something. This is wholeheartedly given over to a single course of action. That this is who I am, this is what I'm about. To be devoted to something, this is what I am. And these people, when they were devoted to God, it meant they weren't just interested in God or desiring God. They weren't just disciplined about pursuing God. This is who they are now. They are the children of God, and this is what they're all about. Then from there, we looked at the practices that they went after in pursuit of God. And the first one of those things was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching i.e. the Word of God. And we understood this, that the Word of God is our rule of faith and practice. It's the foundation. It's the foundation for us of what we know how to act. It's also the foundation of reality. We live by faith, not by sight. That the world has images and has thoughts that it impresses on us all the time. And that the only way for us to stay rooted in God's reality is for us to continually be washed in the water of the word. Which means we intentionally brainwash ourselves all the time by reading and studying this thing. Because we realize that we're being brainwashed. So we have to wash ourselves in the truth. And when we do, the truth will set us free. And so then the, th- the next week after that, which was last week, we saw they devoted themselves not only to the word, but they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And the reason they devoted themselves to the fellowship is the fellowship was the gathering of the believers. This is the body of Christ. We recognize that when Christ sees us in our relationship with him, he doesn't see just a bunch of individuals in their pursuit of him. God sees us as one. There's only one church. He calls us the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. They're all singular images that we are one. And that as we may go into our personal disciplines and our personal devotions to God and try to work our lives out, but unless we are actually building the bridge of the relationships with one another, and unless we're working at this together, we're deceiving ourselves if we think we're spiritually maturing because we can't do that as islands. We are actually one. And we only reflect the image of God when we become one, the way the Trinity is one. And so we talked about them devoting themselves, wholeheartedly giving themselves over to pursuit of God in the pursuit of the word and in the pursuit of the fellowship, the relationships with each other. And then today we move into they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. What is the breaking of bread? It's communion 
communion. It's the, it's, the, it's the religious practice. It's the tradition that Christ started at that Last Supper where he got us started by saying, every time you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. He breaks the bread and he drinks the wine and he tells us, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. And this is a category for us where they devote themselves primarily to this communion act, but it's also a symbol of other things. I mean, these are, these are the religious practices that are put in place for the church. We know this isn't the only one that they practice. Jesus tells them in, at the end of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is another one of these, what, what have historically been known as sacraments or ordinances of the church. And so this is the category when it comes to things like especially these two of the bread and the cup, communion and baptism, but there's a bunch of other things as well, the gathering together in corporate worship like we're doing here. Marriage is often seen as one of these. There's the anointing with oil for the person who's sick. There's, there's all sorts of things, and, and we'll look at them a little bit more throughout the morning. But this is them devoting themselves to this. All right, and so what we're going to do this morning is it's going to be a little bit different than our normal Sunday. This is actually going to be a three-part message given by three different people. And so we have these little snippets, okay? And this is, I've, I've tasked um, our, two of these people, uh, the two that aren't me, I've tasked with an impossible task. And uh, that means that they have to compress massive amounts of history and understanding of the ordinances or the sacraments of the church into a very, very brief period of time. Scott has the, the undesirable uh, task of compressing basically all of church history's understanding of communion and baptism into five minutes. Okay, so uh, good luck with that. And, um, and we're, you know, we're going to just hit the gong if he goes over, you know, or something. Uh, no, Scott did a really good job in first service uh, sharing with us about that. And then Dave um, is going to come and share with us about in the Church of the Brethren, the, the movement that we historically hail from, uh, how that has been interpreted and expressed in that tradition. And then we are going to, and then I'm going to come back up and, and apply specifically how the ordinances are expressed here at Parker Ford Church and why we do them. So that's the, the way our morning's going to go. Scott, why don't you come up and uh, actually stand with me here as we all stand and read our text for the day, which is the, the same text we've been working on, Acts 2. So, we're going to, uh, I'm going to read this for us, Acts 2, 42 to 47. We're going to read it in honor of the word. Thank you for standing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat and join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your grace to us. We have no ability to comprehend the depth of your grace. But we thank you for these symbols that help us be reminded of it. 
And so we thank you for it. I ask that you bless Scott as he communicates with us about history and you be with Dave as he communicates with us about history and that you would uh, be with us as we uh, later on break the bread of communion as Pastor Josh leads us through that service and that you would be with us as we break open the bread of the word of God today. In Jesus' name. All right, so one of the uh, primary tenets of the Christian faith is, is forgiveness. And uh, I, I blew it royally in the first service on my time limit. And so if you ever wondered if Parker Ford actually believes what they teach, they gave me the mic back again, you know, which might have been, you know. So I'm going to try to do better, but I appreciate the grace. Um, so we're talking about the sacraments and or ordinances, depending on, you know, the tradition that you're from. And, and, you know, the, uh, the way in which you've celebrated these things. The, the one thing to start off with is that from uh, the very beginning and throughout the history of the church, there are two that have distinguished themselves as being primary. Uh, there are others that are sort of, some consider secondary, some, uh, you know, reject them. But baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two primary ordinances, Catholic or Protestant. We both affirm them and celebrate them. And from the early church... I mean, they just had what Jesus set forth. Uh, there was no rigid formulation. And so for the first couple hundred years, um, not much was said in a, in a formal way around either of these doctrines. And they enjoyed uh, a little bit more freedom, whereas the doctrine of Christ is sort of noted for having a lot of controversies around it. Um, a lot of division was produced around early theologies of who Jesus was. Uh, baptism, not so much, and baptism much less than the Lord's Supper, uh, as we'll um, discover in church history. And so, the early Christian apologists, this is the post-apostolic era, celebrated these things in the way that we find them in Scripture, the way that Tim's sort of highlighting them in the text, and uh, the developments that became more formal came at, much, at a much later time. Uh, significantly, in around 800, there were three guys uh, who got in a debate, and their names were Radbertus, Rabinus, and Ratramnus. And I'm convinced they're long-lost cousins or something. Uh, but these guys got in a debate, and what's over the practice and the function of these things, and more significant than what they said and where they fell out, was the fact that this was the first, this marked the moment when um, these things were, began to be formulated precisely, especially the Lord's Supper. So we begin to see the church disagreeing on levels, coming together, and saying, uh, no, we have to talk about this. Uh, it means this, not this. Uh, we do this. We don't do that. So around 800, we're starting to get the beginnings of formulation, something formal. Uh, and then we see around 11 and 1200, the Catholic church begins to take its more magisterial shape where, uh, you know what I mean, its hierarchy is developed in, in the way in which we might feel it now, and several guys, among them uh, Aquinas, who is the greatest Catholic theologian and the one on whom uh, his shoulders they stand, began to insert the idea that sacraments were not merely just a sign, as Augustine and Tertullian, early African church fathers, would say, they, they, they're a sign of something and they reflect it, but it's actually about the thing being reflected, not about the sign. Whereas the Catholic Church would come in and say the sign itself is something significant and it actually conveys and demonstrates grace and it is grace itself. So formalism took a, took a turn there when we got to the, 
um, the Catholic Church and Aquinas. And so, so several hundred years later, the Reformers come along. And what's, what's funny about the Reformers is they were united in their, um, their stance against Rome, but even amongst themselves, they were a little bit divided, in different, uh, more than a little bit on several occasions. So they, they didn't want the, the doctrines that the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 said, transubstantiation, okay? You've heard of transubstantiation, that the water and bread are changed, transformed into, um, sorry, the wine and the bread, the body and blood of Christ, that actually something is happening, it's being transformed. That doctrine itself didn't take shape formally until 1215. So we had a thousand years of church history before that came to us formally. Uh, the Reformers will reject that. Luther and Calvin will make some distinctions. Luther will argue against transubstantiation and for consubstantiation. He'll say nothing actually happens where it's, it's actually changed, but he'll say Christ is actually present with. Con means with. Um, so Christ is present with these symbols. And, and then a lot of the, the other reformers would say Christ is only actually present spiritually. He's not physically present. So there's some distinctions about the nature of Christ and his body and where he resides. Some real fun, uh, deep stuff there. So the Catholics, um, they, they sort of focused on this Latin phrase. It was called ex opere operato, which said, by the very operation, the very function of itself, the sacraments are grace. By the very doing of them. It has nothing to do with the person giving them, nothing to do with the person receiving them necessarily. They're a gracious function. And the Reformers are going to want to highlight, especially for us, that uh, it has to do with the person's faith, as, as does all of our Christian life, and the proclamation of the word that attends the sacrament. That's the big distinction. It's not merely a service or a rite. It's that the proclamation of the Christian word comes, and as the sacrament is attached to that word, then our faith can come into play in believing what Christ is doing for us um, in the sacrament. So I just want to close with saying that um, they are many different things on different fronts to different people in different traditions. <clears throat> we stand in a Protestant tradition that Dave's going to explain a little bit more. They are at the very least, as Tim said, we don't function as islands. The sacraments do not exist in a vacuum. They're gifts from Christ to his church. They're tethered to local bodies of believers and are most meaningful in their expression in corporate gatherings. And they also serve as marks of a true church. They distinguish between cults and a church. A true church uh, faithfully administers the preaching of God's word and administers the sacraments. And some would even argue that there's uh, church discipline should be taking, case, uh, taking place there as well. And lastly, the sacraments are not mystical. They are mystical. Excuse me. They're not magical. They signify our identity and our commitment, and they serve as signs and, and memorial of our remembrance. They promote a covenantal continuity together with us as we celebrate Christ in these things. Dave? Thanks, Scott. You know, I really have appreciated this uh, sermon series. I appreciate all of our sermon series, but this one because we're delving back into Acts to find out what the early church was like, uh, it really speaks to what the founders of the Church of the Brethren did. That's what they wanted to do. They went back to the source in order to make decisions 
regarding their set of beliefs. Now, all of this occurred in the early 18th century, following a time of, of great upheaval after the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you know, Martin Luther nailed those 95 complaints on the uh, church door in, in Wittenberg, and there were other movements that came out of the Protestant Reformation. The Anabaptist movement, the Pietistic movement, uh, and they're closely tied to the Church of the Brethren. They felt that Luther, in his Protestant Reformation, did not go far enough. They had a desire to truly restore the early church, and therefore these movements were known as restorationism, the idea of restoring, going back to the original. Now, if you've sat through uh, PFC 101, the class on Brethren History and Beliefs, you've seen the cross before that's up on the screen. Now, we get a clue as to how the early brethren were going to restore things by looking at the center of the cross, inside the heart. It says, the New Testament, our rule of faith and practice. The New Testament was to be the yardstick by which every belief, every practice of the church was to be evaluated. Could it be found? Could it be supported by what is contained in the New Testament? Even more importantly, could it be supported by the words and the example of Jesus Christ himself? The biggest clash with the established religions of the day, which were Catholicism, Lutheranism, and the Reformed Church, was in the area of baptism. These three religions taught infant baptism. And the early founders of the Church of the Brethren said that infant baptism just simply is not supported by what we find in the New Testament. So they then adopted the idea of adult or believer's baptism. No big deal, right? No. Wrong. Keep in mind that at this time in Europe, every area had a prince or had a count or some type of a ruling monarch, and they determined what your religion would be. So if the count who was in charge of your area, who ruled over your area, was a Catholic, guess what? You were a Catholic. Uh, you also have to keep in mind that every area had a military presence. Some, uh, and in some cases, if you had a newborn baby and you failed to baptize that baby, that military presence, along with the church, would come in and forcibly baptize your baby. By the same token... If you engaged in adult baptism, you could be arrested, you could be imprisoned, you could even be executed for practicing baptism. And many people were. You were executed, by the way, by drowning. Just think about that for a minute. All right, so when eight individuals, including Alexander Mack, who is the founder of the Church of the Brethren, decided to be baptized in the Ader River in Germany in an uh, August morning in 1708, they were truly taking a radical stance. They were also taking a significant risk, which was one of the motivators for Mack and the Brethren to come to this country. You know, there's a woodcut uh, of a baptism in the Schuylkill River. It was because of religious freedom that they came to this country, and they were less persecuted, although there was some even in this country. Their actions were governed by their desire to obey the Scriptures as well as the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the same held true for the other ordinances that they practiced and that we continue to practice today. Baptism, of course, and of course then 
the Lord's Supper, or as we refer to it, love feast, which includes an examination service, uh, a meal, feet washing, and also, of course, the bread and the cup. Other ordinances, anointing for healing, and the laying on of hands. All are scripturally based practices and teachings. There were other ordinances, other teachings that have that were practiced and have not continued to the same degree today. Wearing plain clothing, which the early brethren did, was based on the idea of nonconformity, being in the world but not of the world, not being afraid to be different. And this has not continued, as you know, in most brethren congregations, although there are are still some who still wear the plain dress. Uh, Another uh, example of a teaching, not swearing an oath, like when you're in court and you're testifying, uh, is another example uh, that has not been embraced to the same level as the other ordinances. The ordinances have not always been mainstream or even comfortable to engage in. And perhaps the best example of this is foot washing. But the brethren take Jesus very seriously at his word when he says in John 13, starting with verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then in verse 17, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And I think all of us who participate in the ordinances agree that there is blessing to be found through participation. The brethren view ordinances as teachings, not as sacraments, not as rites. We believe that there is nothing sacred about the practices in and of and by themselves. There is nothing magic about them. The most important part of participating in any ordinance is the aspect of connecting to God. It's the relationship between you individually and the Lord that will determine if you're affected, if you're changed, or if you're even communicated to through your participation in that experience. In other words, when people engage in baptism, it's possible for them to enter the water as a dry sinner and emerge as a wet sinner. Okay? Uh, The change in a person is not brought about by the water, It's not brought about by the act of participating in baptism. It is an interchange that takes place, that occurs on the inside, in one's heart and in one's mind. Baptism is a public declaration of that interchange that has taken place. And the cleansing action of the water is symbolic. It's symbolic of receiving the forgiveness uh, of sins from Christ. And the same certainly holds true for, for the communion, for bread and the cup. The symbols of Jesus' body and blood, the bread and the cup, are just that. They are symbols. In fact, we've used other symbols. I've used other symbols with the kids. I've used goldfish crackers and grapes with the kids. It's very difficult to spill uh, grapes, as as easy it is as grape juice. I've heard of other groups that have used pizza and Coke. Now, you might say, well, that's sacrilegious. But Jesus used what was common, what was on the table in his day. He wanted us to remember him that often every time we eat and every time we drink. But we don't get holy or we don't receive some type of mystical blessing or protection by receiving the symbols of the bread and the cup. The blessing comes as we allow the experience to be used as a means of more closely connecting with Jesus. Each ordinance is, in a very real sense, 
a kind of seeking. And I really can't say it any better than uh, brethren, teacher, and author Bernard Eller, who wrote these words. In the ordinances, the brethren seek to remind themselves who they are, who their Lord is, and where lies their kingdom goal. They seek to celebrate and give thanks for the grace they have experienced in discipleship. They seek to renew and deepen their commitment to the Lord and to one another. They seek to make themselves open to new light, to more power, to a closer following upon the Lord's way to the kingdom. You know, as we... uh, Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, As we uh, talk about the history of how sacraments and ordinances have been practiced, and you watch how a movement start out with real pure motive uh, around these things, and ultimately it can kind of morph, and and the, the teaching lesson or the symbol becomes the actual worship itself, the focal point of the worship, and, and you watch things shift like that. It just reminds you that this happens all the time in world history where a movement starts trying to get back to the goodness of how things are supposed to be, and then ultimately over time, you know, it disintegrates and becomes something else. You, you watch the struggle in a place like, like Israel and, and, the, and the battle that happens there or in Ireland and, and how, you know, you watch the, the religious battles and what did this start as and what has it become, you know? Speaking of Ireland, there was this guy, Seamus, who was driving around downtown Dublin and uh, he was looking for, he was really frustrated. He was in a sweat because he was trying to get to his meeting and he was super late for his meeting and uh, he couldn't find a parking space. And so finally he decides to turn to prayer and he says, Lord, have mercy on me. If you'll just find me a parking place, I promise you, I'll go to Mass every Sunday for the rest of my life. I'll even give up me Irish whiskey. And he comes around the corner, and right there in front of his building, a car miraculously pulls out, and ah, right there's the parking spot, the dream parking spot. So he looks back up into heaven, and he says, Never mind, God, I found one. Thank you. (laughs) You know, sometimes we have a tendency to take credit for the grace of God. We don't have the ability to make the air that we be, breathe. We don't have the ability to make the water that we drink. We can't keep our feet planted on this earth while it spins on axis and rotates around the sun. We can't do that on our own. That's all the work of God. We live in a realm of the grace of God. Our very existence is by the grace of God. And yet we think that it's human right that we have so often to be treated a certain way in a relationship or to have a certain level of existence. We don't deserve anything short of separation from God and absolute destruction. That's what we deserve. But what we receive from God is grace all of the time. But we have a tendency to take credit for that or at least take it for granted. And what happens when we take God's grace for granted or we take credit for it is we don't live in a sense of gratitude towards God, toward God's grace. And what happens even beyond that is we don't explore the depth of God's grace that's available to us. See, some grace we have just by sitting here and by breathing. We're experiencing the grace of God. But there's other parts of the grace of God that we only access when we begin to realize them and trust them and put our faith in them. Namely, the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. You see, the depth of that grace and how pervasive his redemption is in our lives is something that we have a hard time comprehending. And unless we learn to meditate on it and dwell within it and live within it, we won't experience the freedom that this grace has for us. And so the acts of the ordinances 
are the reminders that Christ puts in us as a body, as a fellowship. They are consistent actions. They are the artwork of God so that we can experientially remember and learn the core of our faith. And what is the core of our faith? What is it that separates Christian faith from all the other religions of the world? It's not just that we're cooler than everyone else, you know, because we're certainly not. (laughs) We really aren't, you know. It's not that we think better or are smarter, Christians, none of that. There's nothing better about Christians than any other faith. What is it that sets apart the Christian faith? And notice that I'm saying the Christian faith, not just the religion of Christianity, but the true faith of a follower of Christ. What sets that apart from any other world religion? It's a simple word called grace. Really, that's what it boils down to. And it's a two-sided coin. On one side, it's how we view ourselves and, and our sin. And on the other side, it's how pervasive God's love is and how much it can change the game. It's, it's grace. Let me explain to you. You see, all world religions, if they're worth anything at all, which is a question uh, that we might ask ourselves, but anyone who's dealing with reality on any level has a nice starting place at the top of the cycle that says humans are selfish. If we don't realize that we're selfish, then just throw out the faith at all because it's not dealing with reality. We're a selfish people. So it starts with us, us being selfish. And what happens is because we're selfish, we want to self-indulge and we want to self-satisfy. So we do things to satisfy ourselves and to indulge ourselves. But because of how God created us, that we're actually supposed to be wellsprings of life and love for others, when we begin to indulge ourselves in ways that are inappropriate, what ends up happening is is we move into the realm of self-loathing, where we begin to not like ourselves. So we start first with selfishness, then we move into this place of of self-satisfaction, of self-indulgence, and it moves us then into this place of self-loathing, of self-hatred, of disappointment in ourselves. And what happens right here is the big key, okay? There's two ways of responding to this moment when we're disappointed with who we are because we've been selfish. One is to self-medicate. And self-medicating, what that does is that is we, we re-indulge. We have to indulge ourselves again because we don't like what we're seeing and we have to satisfy it. So we go and entertain ourselves or we go and satisfy ourselves with this or, or we try, we do whatever it is. We indulge ourselves in some way. We self-medicate. And all that does is provide a quick little cycle of I self-medicate, I self-loathe. I self-medicate, I self-loathe. I self-medicate, I self-loathe. I, I do something to make me feel better and very quickly then I feel bad about myself because I just did it. That's a one real quick cycle that we get caught in. But see, this is where the religions of the world make their money. Okay, this is, this is where it all works. Is right in this moment, there's another option. And the option is don't just self-medicate. Don't get stuck in this cycle of doing this dumb stuff over and over again that you're not going to like yourself for. Instead, self-improve. You see, there's a right and a wrong. There's good and evil. And what the, the religions of the world will tell us is that we need to improve. We need to move out of the realm of evil, which is this self-medication Okay, And we need to move from there and instead go into self-improvement where we get better and we live better. And what that means is, is we do more charity. We care for people. We do good things for people. Or we stop doing bad things and we live more righteous lifestyles. Or we engage in more religious activity. 
you get involved in church more, or you take more ordinances, or you do whatever it is, and, and through all of this, you self-improve. And what happens is, is if we move into that realm of self-improvement, we become self-dependent and self-reliant. And if we see any sort of surface change in ourselves, and we say, hey, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm doing more religious activity. I'm doing a little better. I did these nice things for people. Then we gain self-confidence. And what happens is once you gain self-confidence, very quickly that moves to a place called self-righteousness. And we feel good about ourselves because how we're living. And you know what self-righteousness is? That's pride. And you know what pride comes before? The fall, which is self-indulgence, which leads to self-loathing, which leads to either self-medicating or self-improving. And it's this cycle that we go through over and over and over again. And world religions make their money on saying instead of self-medicating, self-improve. And our religion helps you know how to self-improve. And perhaps if you improve yourself enough, the gods will be charitable to you. And when you're reincarnated, you will come back as something better. Or maybe Allah will have, will, will, will have some kindness to you and allow the seven virgins to fan you while you're in, in paradise or whatever it is, all of the religions say the same thing, that there is this this rule that we have to live by, and if we can just do it good enough that we have some sort of contractual relationship with God or the gods who will show favor on us. And that's the common denominator. And it is completely antithetical to the basic Christian faith. Why? Because the basic Christian faith says this, that we are lost beyond help that we are completely and totally incapable of improving ourselves. That this cycle, you know that that cycle where you try the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, but always getting the same results, you know that's a definition of insanity, right? You know, that's what that, and so you know why when people look at religion all the time and they say, this is insane. Have you seen what this has done to our world? It's, It's insanity. And they're absolutely right. Absolutely right. But the true Christian faith believes something different. It says we cannot break this cycle, that we are lost in this cycle, and that the only way that that cycle will be broken is if something breaks into that cycle and rescues us. We are hopelessly and helplessly lost unless someone or something saves us. Enter the grace of God. Enter Christ. Enter the death of and resurrection of God incarnate. And this is our rescue. This is the Christian doctrine. It's two sides of a coin of grace, and on the one side, it believes, God, I can't do this on my own. I'm helplessly lost. I try to self-improve myself, and I think I'm actually getting there, and it looks like I'm doing good, and next thing you know, I'm self-indulging again. It's absurd. I can't break the cycle. I need a rescue. And the more I understand my depravity, the more I understand my inability to self-improve, the more I understand my sin, the more I am held to the core of the Christian faith if I will also flip the coin and realize that the redemption of God goes deeper than my sin. When I realize that the rescue of Jesus goes further than even the pervasiveness of my sin, that he overwhelms and he floods over my sin, and as deep as my depravity and so deeper is his redemption, his rescue. And this right here is the core of our faith. And these practices, these ordinances serve as the ritual reminders to us 
that we are in fact helplessly lost sinners who have screwed everything up and we can't fix ourselves. And they also remind us that he's got us and he redeems us. And he doesn't just forgive our sins. He clothes us in a robe of righteousness. He washes us and he purifies us so that he can present us to himself as that spotless bride that we've talked about over the last few weeks in that Ephesians 5 passage, presenting us to him as a radiant bride desired by him. And when we understand that we are helplessly lost and we understand that he is the savior that he actually claims, it changes the cycle because we don't look to ourselves for rescue. We look to him for rescue. And everything changes if we truly begin to trust him. If we truly begin to trust him. And that's what these ordinances do, is they serve as a reminder. And they serve not just for ourselves. The reason that we practice them consistently in the church and that they've been set up as a tradition is because our minds trick, we get tricked in our minds all the time, and we need something stable that continues to remind us. Have you heard about this, like, super earth that they found that's in a galaxy very close to our galaxy, where they actually believe they've found a a, a place, a planet, that is in a life-sustaining zone, that potentially could be life-sustaining? There's no way that they can take pictures of this thing. It's far too far away. It's one of the closest galaxies, but it's way too far away for them to get pictures of. They have all these readings and everything to figure it all out. But what they're saying is, and this is what they say about it, is we've been studying all the galaxies that are close to us to try to figure this out. And, and the reason we've been studying these galaxies close to us, and this is a quote, is because we recognize that if we find a place like this, that we could send a robotic probe to go and take pictures, and within a few hundred years they would be able to start sending postcards back to us about pictures about this life-sustaining earth in a few hundred years. You realize these guys, are st- these men and women, are studying something that there is absolutely no way that it will bear fruit in their lifetime, but they believe the mystery of the universe is important enough that they will start to work at something that will bear fruit in a couple hundred years, and perhaps their grandkids' grandkids might actually be able to start learning from what it is they're doing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat in a room and he broke bread and he drank wine and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And today, 2,000 years later, we will do the exact same thing. And when we do, we will remember that this man who was God died on a cross and it changes everything. And if I forget that, then I don't realize who I am. And if I forget that, I don't understand the grace of God and how this ancient truth actually changes my present life and changes the future for my kids. And we uphold these practices not only to remind us, but because we believe that in hundreds of years from now, if the Lord should tarry, that it is important that our grandkids are able to go through the same practice to remember the timeless truth that God came and rescued me and rescued them. It's the power of the ordinances. It was my body that was to be broken and my blood that was to be shed, but instead his broke and his shed. 
He died like baptism. He went down into the earth and he came up and rose and conquered and broke the cycle of death. And, 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 and Romans just rings in my ears where it says what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by sinful nature. God did by sending his son. You know, um, I've heard some people ask me recently about this idea of God sacrificing his son. And some have done this from a place of faith. Some have done it from a lack of faith. But I've heard this consistent question come up recently. And, and I want you to hear the question, okay? And this is the question. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three sixteen, perhaps the most famous verse in the scriptures. And the question coming off of that is people will say, I get the fact, perhaps, that God loves us so much that he sacrifices his son, and that's supposed to mean to me that God is just that loving that he would even give up his son for me. But don't you think, Tim, that it's a little bit peculiar that a loving dad would allow his wonderful son to be murdered and tortured so that a bunch of rebellious sinners would be saved. I mean, you might say that that's how radical God's love is, but if you look at it rationally, doesn't that look like God's got priority issues? Like, why would he sacrifice this wonderful son for the rebellious sinners? It doesn't make much sense. And if he would do that, what does that say about how we should live? And where are our priorities? Before we string that person up, those people up, and stone them for being heretics and questioning God's love, let's just applaud the fact that if someone's asking a question like that and really looking for an answer, that's a very good question. Questions aren't bad to ask as long as we're actually looking for the answer and not just trying to blow holes in faith, you know? So I want to take you on a, on a quick little workaround on this topic in order to answer this question to lead us into communion, okay? If we're looking for the answer to that, why would... God the Father, it says in Isaiah that it pleased God to crush him. That's hard for me to handle, okay? Why does it please God to crush his son, and how can we be okay with a God like that? There's a piece that we're missing, and the piece that we're missing when we think through this often is the, is the idea of the Trinity. And, and you'll see how this comes around. You see, in Sunday school classes, and those of you who are Sunday school teachers, I just want to applaud you so much for what you do. I really appreciate what you do. You do awesome work. And particularly when you're trying to educate kids and help them understand the doctrines of the faith, you're awesome. Way to go. We love you. We appreciate everything you're doing. One of the things, and same with all the child care workers, not just Sunday school, all the child care workers, whether you're in Journey Kids or Junior Church or whatever it is, VBS. And one of the things that we struggle with is trying to take deep doctrines and put them in an understanding for a child. And yet if they can't be communicated to a child on some level, we wonder if we can really hang with them. So one of the things we say about the Trinity is this. All right, there's an egg. And the egg, at the be in the middle of the egg is what? The yolk. And just outside of that is what? The white. And outside of that is what? Shell. Three different parts, very unique parts, and yet together they make one. And this is our picture of the Trinity. However, you know, that's not actually the biblical picture of the Trinity. I applaud you Sunday school teachers for doing the best you can. But this is actually what the scriptures say about the Trinity. 
This isn't a direct quote, but this is, the, this is the philosophy of the Trinity. That you put an egg on the table, one single egg, and you say, that's three eggs. And then you add two more eggs, and you put three eggs on the table, and you say, that's one egg. That's what the scriptures say the Trinity is. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. We can't comprehend this thing. There's no picture by which we can make it fit into our minds. And you know what? Praise God for the fact that there are things about God that we can't understand. If I were to launch into space on some spaceship, do you think that I would want to go to the guy who was designing the spaceship and expect that I could understand everything he's talking about regarding the spaceship? I would certainly hope that I would have to take like 30 classes just to understand the words he's using in order to describe what it is that he's done because I want to have confidence in someone that knows things far beyond what I know. And with God, there better be things that don't make sense to us about God. If not, do we really want him being God? You know, there's things we can't comprehend about God. But if we choose to believe them because he says them, then it changes what it is that we can comprehend on other levels. All right, here's where it comes around. Why would God the Father crush his son and be okay with it? Think about this. We're talking about the Father in that moment, but step over and see another picture of the Son. And this is what the Scriptures tell us. The Scriptures tell us that no greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you believe that? The greatest possible love is to lay down your life, not just your death, but also your life, to lay it down for someone else. The Scriptures teach us this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinning, we were in the middle of sin, Christ died for us. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Here's the picture. The picture is that there's a woman who's been incredibly unfaithful to her husband and that she has been running around and now she is in the middle of the city and there is a guy who she's trying to chase on the other side of the road and she is going toward him and she is really focused on chasing this guy. Her husband is behind her and her husband sees her walking across the road and she's so focused on this other man and going and getting him that what she doesn't see is there's a bus that's coming toward her. And it's coming at like 60 miles an hour and she doesn't even see it. And she's walking in front of this bus. And you see this husband who has been treated completely inappropriately running at a full sprint trying to catch up to her. And he dives into the road and he pushes her out of the way just in time to get crushed by the bus. I want you to know that that's not only a picture of Jesus, that's a picture of the Father. Because the three are one. And we may think of the father giving up his son. But remember, God gave himself up so that his bride could be purified. So she could be loved. So she could be cherished. So she could be clothed in a robe of righteousness. So the cycle of self-indulgence and self-loathing and self-medicating and and self-dependence and self-improvement and and self-reliance and self-righteousness and self indulgence, that it could be broken. And he gives himself up for us. The two sides of the coin here when it comes to the Christian faith are this. 
that I need to not look at you and you and you and you to see how good I'm doing. Because when I do, I might actually think for a minute that I'm doing okay. Because some of you might be real slackers and I might be only mildly slacking compared to you. And yet all I am is a self-deceived slacker if I actually think that that makes me righteous. Because if the bar that's being set for my righteousness is all of you, well, you're a bunch of sinners too, you know? And when we look around and compare ourselves to others, we've missed the bar of righteousness. When we begin to look at the original design in Genesis, and when we begin to look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and when we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and we realize what it is that God has called us to, we realize that we have helplessly and hopelessly fallen short of the glory of God, and our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. We need a rescue. And the more we're in touch with the fact that we need a rescue, the better off we are. And the more we listen to the voice of God to hear the rescue, the more instead of him having to always run out in front of the bus, we begin to hear him saying, hey, I ran out in front of the bus for you. Turn around and take a step this way. And we learn to trust him and say, I might not know why I'm doing this anymore, but I trust him and I go his way because he is the one who saves me. And he is the one who loves me. And he is the one who respects me when I don't even respect myself. And we begin to trust him because we understand the core of the Christian faith is not self-dependence, but dependence on Christ. And this is the picture of the bread and the cup. This is the picture of baptism. If you haven't been baptized and, and, and you claim faith. You need to be baptized. We're commanded to be baptized. God won't look better on you if you're baptized. He's, why does God care if we do religious activities? It's not like it helps God out somehow. The reason he puts these things in place is to keep us expressing our faith and keep us in touch with him. That's why. He's not impressed by these things. He created them for our own good, you know? But if you haven't been baptized... It, you need to come and talk to one of us about being baptized. It's the picture of us dying and resurrecting in a new life. My life's not my own anymore. I'm devoted to Christ. It's all him. The, the bread and the cup. If you haven't been a part of Love Feast, our big communion moment, you need to be a part of that at some point. It's incredible. It's incredible. And it's really awkward because we wash each other's feet, which is just stinking bizarre, you know? <laughs> and uh, it, it's really weird. And yet it's rich because Jesus said, I did this, and now I want you to do this. And we kind of take him at his word, and we find out that it's really humbling. And it was no less humbling back then, you know? Actually, the feet were a whole lot dirtier back then, you know? So this is what we do when we practice these things. This is what we do, is we recognize that the grace of God has been given to us already. But we remember, as Christ tells us, to remember these things. We remember them through the regular practice of the ordinance. And these are huge. They're deeply important for us to hold on to. They don't save us. They don't improve us. But they remind us of our salvation. And we share in them together. The foundation is the word. We devote ourselves to the word to know the truth. We express it in the community, in the fellowship. And one of the things that keeps us anchored in the middle of it is these ordinances, which keep us centered not on us, but keep us centered on him. Josh is going to come and lead us through the communion service now.